I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We often end up looking at something and thinking, oh, I really like that. But the reality is you have to be thinking about the other person. Hi, I'm Renee Filipponi in Vancouver, in for Ian Hanamansing. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. It's stressful. You want your gift to be meaningful. You want to get it right and you don't want it to be misinterpreted. Our question, what's the best and worst gift you've ever received? My very best gift ever. I was 14 years old and I guess my parents were sick of me trying to talk to my friends on the phone. And I got a turquoise blue princess telephone for my bedroom. It was Christmas. My dad was uh, laid off. We had no money coming in. We get a knock on the door. There are two guys from CAW, the Canadian Auto Workers, and they've got a basket, a turkey and everything. And it was a wonderful Christmas. My worst gift, um, it was a pair of red velvet socky, slippery things that my grandma thought would be fantastic for a 21-year-old guy to wear. It's the season of giving for many different cultures, and whether those gifts are appreciated or not quite what you expected, they make lasting holiday memories nonetheless. Of all the toys, clothes, and gadgets I was given over the years, there is one gift that stands out. And it wasn't really about the present itself, it was about the experience. Now, my sister and I were in Taekwondo as kids, and one of our gifts on Christmas morning was an envelope with a note. It led us on a scavenger hunt around the house until we ended up in the garage. And hanging there was a big punching bag. Now, that definitely was not on my list that year, but the joy of finding that gift has stuck with me. Our question today, what is the best or worst gift you've ever received? And then, in the last half hour, it could be our most explosive AMA ever. How do you load the dishwasher? Do you rinse the dishes first? Do knife handles go up or down? We'll dish the answers you'll need to keep the peace in our Ask Me Anything. I'm Renee Filipponi in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Check Up the Podcast. Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast from December 14th, 2023. Now, there is a lot of etiquette that goes into gift giving. So before we get to your calls, we want to talk about some of those do's and don'ts when it comes to getting and giving presents at this time of the year. So Susie Fazadi is an etiquette expert and founder of Avignon Etiquette, and she joins me now. Hi, Susie. Hello, how are you, Renee? I am great. It's Christmas Eve. Everyone's in a celebratory mood. <laughs> getting ready for... All is good. <laughs> exactly. Getting ready for what can be often some fun, joyous, or even potentially awkward moments over the next couple of days. But before we get to some of the etiquette, uh, what is the best gift you've ever received? I love that. And you know what? I have to say, it's my sweet little dog that I received on my 40th birthday, it was sort of 
right after my mom had passed away. And, you know, it came from such a special spot because, you know, the, the family was, do we, don't we? My husband's not really a pet person. Shocking. Um, so for him to give me that sweet gift at that time, uh, that really touched the heartstrings. And she's t- today our pride. <laughs> So let's jump into the etiquette then. And and here's one I've actually had conversations about uh, recently. Gift cards. Are they an appropriate gift ever? I seem to think if you're going to get a gift card, you may as well just give the person cash. But what are your thoughts on this one? I love that one. And I think that everything is in context, right? If we know that someone has been longing for something, I mean, call it, you know, the new bestseller, and we give them a chapter's gift card, perhaps with a note, and the note always being the most important thing, saying, you know, here's the gift card so that you can purchase that book I know you've had, you know, um, you've wanted to get, please enjoy, right? Versus just picking up, you know, 20 Starbucks gift cards and giving them to everybody we see, right? So <laughs> it's, it's making it personal. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you think if you think about something that they actually want, that that gift card is going to go to, then right. it's acceptable. Absolutely. And it takes just a few minutes, right, to put it in a card and to take the time to write that card with expressing that idea, Right. All right. I'm here live with Susie Fasati. She's an etiquette expert. And our question today is what are the best and worst gifts you have received? You can call us at one 416 and you can text us too. So the number for that is 226-758-8924. We've been asking people, Susie, about yeah. their best and worst gifts. We've heard some stories of some some of both. But what are you supposed to do if you open a gift that you clearly don't like and it isn't isn't going to fit you? Right. And I know that, you know, so many of us are going to end up in that position, right? Uh, we live in such a rush society where, you know, sometimes taking that time to buy that really special, meaningful thing isn't always possible. So, you know, we're going to end up opening up something and it's like, oh, so what can you do? You know what? Appreciate the gesture, right? I wouldn't focus on the gift, but focus on the gesture and always acknowledge, you know, oh, you know, that was very, very thoughtful of you to give me this gift. Thank you so much. Right. So we're acknowledging the gesture and the thought, not necessarily the gift. But is it appropriate to ask for a gift receipt? Yes. Or is- no, if it's. <laughs> is that too forward? That quick. <laughs> That was quick. No, I wouldn't ask for the gift receipt. If you don't, just like if you don't see something on the table, you wouldn't ask for it. If you don't see the gift receipt, you don't ask for it. And that could possibly go in your re-gift pile. <laughs> All right, let's talk about re-gifting then, because that's my next question. Yeah. So you get yeah. the gift, you don't have the gift receipt. Right. What are you going to do? Is it appropriate to then perhaps give it to someone else? Yes, so absolutely, it's okay to re-gift. You just want to be mindful of a few things. First and foremost, I always say re-gift outside of the circle that you're in. So, you know, if um, one of my coworkers or someone sort of in the work uh, circle gave me a gift and I knew I was going to re-gift it, then that might go to someone um, in my family circle or a friend circle. So you want to be outside of the circle. Um, And then, you know, I always 
want to personalize the gift, right? Hopefully there's someone who I know would use whatever that item may be. I still want to personalize it. I always say, you know, if someone gave me a nice uh, set of mugs or something, I might want to put this person's favorite coffee or their favorite chocolate uh, in with it. And so it still has that personal touch and I'm still making it appropriate and nice for the other person. Another big topic this year, Susie, has been the fact that money is tight for a lot of people, especially with the rising cost of living. What advice do you have for people who might need to have or probably should have had already Mm -hmm. at this point, but those difficult conversations about scaling back gifts or maybe not giving gifts, how to talk about that with your children? Right. So, right. I mean, you know, way early in the season, you might have thought to have thought about doing a gift exchange versus gifting everybody, um, you know, a personal gift. Another thing is, it's just, you know, we think about gifts as objects, as things, if you will. And gifts come in so many different forms, you know, perhaps the gift of time with someone or giving a new mom the gift of babysitting. Uh, even perhaps just, you know, a very sweet note. And, you know, when it comes to costs, I always say, you know, a very, very well thought out gift will trump something expensive and really not meaningful for that person every single time. So, you know, with that said, you know, always having that time to think about something um, really appropriate and kind uh, for someone else goes such a long way, especially when finances are involved. All right. Thank you so much, Susie. We're going to get to some callers now to hear about um, some of these gifts and whether or not they took some of these sort of etiquette tips or have used them in the past. That's Susie Fasati. She is an etiquette expert and founder of uh, and director of Avignon Etiquette. So stay tuned. In a few minutes, I'm uh, we'll be speaking with a psychology professor about the stress and anxiety of buying that perfect gift. So we'd love to hear more of your stories in the meantime. Our question is, what are the best and worst gifts you've received, not just at the holiday season, but any time in the year, you can give us a call and share those stories. The number again is one 416 or you could go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Renee Filipponi in the host seat today for Ian Hanamansing, and you're listening to Cross Country Checkup. Let's head to the phone lines now, and let's start in East Kootenai, B.C. Uh, with Greg Fisher. Now, Greg... This is not a Christmas gift or a holiday gift at all, but something very special that you got this past summer. Can you tell us about it? You bet, Renee. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a a kidney transplant, which was uh, literally a gift of life and a game changer for for my world um, a few months ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the story, about, about how that happened, who you got the kidney from? Sure. Um, a number of years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, 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 my kidneys failing, and uh, and I had a number of friends and acquaintances step up to offer me uh, a, to go through the process of me getting a living donor kidney from one of them. Unfortunately, through all the testing, uh, nobody was a, a a match for me, and so when that happens, one of the one of the few options that a person has left is to able to get a, 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 a functioning kidney from a, a deceased donor and that was what happened in my case and so um, I'll be at the you know the loss of of another family's member um, gave me the gift uh, for my life to be able to continue 
have you been reflecting on that much this holiday season when many of us take a little bit of time to reflect on what this past year has been like for us? Uh, you bet. It's um, it's not only a game changer from physically, but it's also a game changer mentally when you go from, um, you know, when you're at an end-of-life stage of, of kidney disease um, to where you have a renewed, basically a second chance at life. So you you part of that process is you do reflect on on the gift that you've been given in the form of time um, to decide how you want to spend that time moving forward. And I see in the notes from the conversation you had with our producers, you also have a message for Canadians out there at, at this time of year as well when it comes to living donation. Yeah, um, if a, just a couple things. Um, the first thing I think it's important to, to mention is that the, statistically, one in 10 Canadians are living with kidney disease. Um, the challenge with one of the challenges with that is that with kidney disease, until you lose about half of your kidney function, you don't really feel any symptoms. And so where there's five stages of kidney failure, um, most people don't are not recognized that they have kidney failure, a form of kidney disease until they're on stage three of the five stages. So um, it's, and, and the other challenge for Canadians as a whole is that um, kidney disease is increasing at a very fast rate. Um, so the other thing is with living, uh, of the living donor um, compared to a deceased donor is the outcome for the, the tra- transplant recipient is generally quite a bit better from the longevity of the, the donor kidney. So, and, and it, it is actually preferable to be able to get a living donor kidney. What a lot of people, I think, don't realize is that the kidney organ is one of the few organs in our body where we actually have an extra one and that you can live quite successfully um, with only one kidney, and there's a number of people that do that. And the one, one stat, that, just to kind of finish off with this, is that one stat that I didn't know until recently is that of half of the living donors in Canada, um, they're, not, they're not related to the, they're not related to the, the recipient of the, of the uh, kidney. So it's people through their... Um, just understanding and that they don't need to have two kidneys um, and that they can save another person's life. Um, you know, it's those, those superheroes um, that can make such a difference for, an, for another person that's suffering. Greg, thank you so much uh, for calling in and, and telling us about your journey this year. Um, you know, fabulous news you got that new kidney, but clearly lots to be reflecting on um, this holiday season as well. So thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon, Greg. Thanks, Renee. And I hope you have a merry and, merry and healthy Christmas. You as thank well. You. Let's head to Yellowknife now. And we have Lorna all her head. She is joining us. Uh, and she has a story uh, about a gift that she was given uh, and how it was a, helped her a little bit this year as well. So Lorna, can you tell us what this favorite gift uh, of yours was? I got a little pocket-sized down throw. It, uh, my girlfriend, uh, we've been on road trips before, but we had never traveled by plane before. And if, um, I think it was 2019, my husband and I were going to the Dominican and she needed a holiday. 
She really did. She'd been separated. Her kids were off at school for the first year. So we said, okay, well, we have a timeshare. We have a, we have extra space come with us. So with air miles and everything, she came with us. She's known me for 30 years, and I don't sleep. I'm just not a sleeper. However, because we're in Yellowknife, it takes 24 hours to get to the Dominican because of all the layovers and everything. So we we were on three or four different planes. I promptly curl up, cover up, and I just I snooze during the layover. And she was just gobsmacked that I could sleep, but that I could just fall asleep anywhere. But I was using whatever coats and everything that I had. So uh, fast forward to uh, Christmas of that year, and I got a soft package that was around the size of a loaf of bread. So I opened it up, and it was this beautiful Eddie Bauer um, down throw. And it folds up to, it's a sofa blanket you lay, lay down, and it covers you from head to shoulders. But however, it's wide enough that if you put it sideways, you can wrap it all the way around you. You can lay on an airport floor, curl up, and you are totally, totally covered. It's warm. It, it's become like a binky for me. If I can't <laughs> I grab that. Uh, we were evacuated this summer. The first thing I grabbed, it went in there. Anytime we're on a road trip, always take that with me because my husband drives, I sleep because it's a really long trip to get out of here. But when we went on evac, I had that with me. We had to have my cat with me. And so, of course, she was discombobulated, but she had mom's binky there. So she was happy, too. And Lorna, here we are. Obviously, it was a very, I would assume, stressful summer for you being from Yellowknife, uh, one of the thousands evacuated. Thankfully, you had your lovely blanket to take with you. What does the holiday season mean for you this year as someone who likely had to leave so many things behind and, and so quickly this summer? Well, thankfully, everything was saved. Yellowknife itself was fine. Thankfully, when we got back, we still had homes to go to. Yes, there was a lot of bumps, but um, it was really stressful. People aren't the same this year. Um, It was extremely costly, so things are scaled back. However, people were more grateful for usual for what we have because we have it. We don't, like, we have homes. We're not like... uh, the communities like enterprise is gone. I have my home. I have people around me. We're safe. We're fine. And we're just enjoying the spirit of the season. Well, Lorna, thank you so much for calling in uh, and sharing that uh, best gift you ever received. So functional, but it was so meaningful at the right time. We do appreciate that. That's Lorna from Yellowknife. Now, we have also been getting um, some responses on social media, and I'm going to read some of uh, those to you as well. Uh, Quite fun. One comes from Camille via Aircheck from Victoria, B.C., Worst gift, a toilet plunger from my dad. And no, it wasn't a joke gift. He thought it was, quote, a really good one and thought I'd like it. It was also wrapped in two pieces, so it counted as 
two separate presents. Another one from Norman Weatherly via air check from Edmonton. My favorite gift is a vinyl record. Daniel Amos and Dig Here, said the angel. And another response we got as well from air check is from Moira Stephen from Vancouver. And she wrote, the best and worst gifts both came from the same giver. A family friend we call Uncle John who came to stay every Christmas The worst was a six-foot-long faux mohair scarf in near fluorescent orange. The best, a box of six pairs of nylon stockings in assorted colors ranging from cream to brown. I cherish the memory of his thoughtfulness. I'm Renee Filipponi in for Ian Hanamancing today. You are listening to and watching Cross Country Checkup. And our question today, what are the best and worst gifts you have ever received? So you can give us a call to share those stories. That's one 416 And if you want to share some comments that I can read on uh, on the air, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Now, earlier this month, writer Alina Adams celebrated Hanukkah with her family. There was a time when these celebrations included gifts for her three kids. But one day, Alina decided to abandon Hanukkah presents altogether and start a new tradition with her family. And she joins us now from New York City. Alina, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you made the decision to stop with the Hanukkah gifts. Tell me a little bit about why. Well, it came down to the fact that my children live in the most privileged city in the most privileged country on earth. And first of all, they had enough stuff. Just giving them anything for the sake of giving them anything didn't seem to have meaning to it. But I also really wanted them to appreciate what they have and to understand that there are people in the world who are not as lucky as they are. So instead of doing eight nights of gifts, which was always a tradition I wasn't particularly thrilled with, I think Hanukkah coming so close to Christmas puts a lot of pressure on what's really a minor holiday. So instead of doing eight nights of gifts, we decided we would do eight days and nights of good deeds instead. So what are some of those good deeds that you performed uh, this year with your family? What were what are some of the highlights? Well, the best thing about this new tradition is that I think it forces you to see the world through a different lens and to look for opportunities to do good gifts because there's always opportunities to do good deeds, but we sort of pass them by saying, oh, I'll do it later. Like for instance, my kids outgrow clothes, like all kids, sometimes they go through two, three sizes a year and we always pack them up and we always say, oh, we'll get around to donating them. Well, having to think of a good deed a day goes, hey, what about those bags of clothes we've been collecting. Let's go donate them. The same thing is when they roll, um, run out of uh, children's books or they age out of children's books. We always put them away and say, oh, there'll be somebody who could use them. Well, once again, let's take that pile of books and let's take it to the library or to the community center or to my son had a dancing school where they had just set up a, um, a little sort of waiting area for younger siblings where they could look at books. And the other thing is it reminds you that things are not just a case of one and done. To give you an example, during the pandemic, my younger son, he set up a website where people who had tech to donate could be matched up with those who needed tech for remote learning. Because in New York City, most of the schools were closed during the pandemic. Well, the pandemic is more or less over, but the fact is people still need tech. And around this time of the year, 
It's good to remind people, oh, you're buying a new iPad for your child or you're buying a new phone. Well, there's people who need it. Here's the website, NYC School Tech, where you can donate your tech for those people who need it. So it was a reminder because it had kind of gone dormant, dormant since the pandemic to go, oh, it's not one and done. You don't just do a good deed once and then it's over. So these eight days to focus, it also reminds you not only to finally do those good deeds you've always been meaning to do but kind of forgot but to remember that just doing it once isn't enough you need to keep giving now alina it does sound like your children have really leaned in uh, to this you know creating programs themselves but what was there ever a moment when they were disappointed that they wouldn't be getting hanukkah gifts anymore and and how did you deal with that well, one of them wrote a delightful song called On the First Night of Hanukkah My Mother Gave to Me. Absolutely not. <laughs> so they, they wanted to So express... they sounded disappo- disappointed at the beginning, for sure, then. Yes, yes. And they expressed it in song, which is a musical theater-loving family I approve of. But it's amazing how quickly habits form in the sense that after the first night or two, they weren't even expecting anything. Instead, they were waking up in the morning and they were saying, oh, what good deed are we going to do today? Or they were coming home from school and saying, oh, I did this, this, and this. So even though most habits are not broken in two days and made in even eight days, it is a really good start. And we've been doing this for a couple of years now to the point where now they literally don't even ask for gifts, but they say things like, oh, Hanukkah is coming up. What are we going to do this year? And I bet they were surprised at how much they actually got back from from doing. Maybe they didn't really understand that at first. It's, it was, they were very surprised. Like my daughter who was six at the time when we dropped off those books at the dancing school that I mentioned and instantly a whole bunch of kids ran to grab one. She's like, they like them. They really like them. She was like a mini Sally Field. It was like, it had never, they'd never made the connection because before we might have given the books away, but they hadn't seen people getting them or we might have given clothes away, but they hadn't seen people getting them. So yes, it was actually amazing for them to see their good deeds in action. And finally, how do you think this change in in how you celebrate Hanukkah has influenced your children as, as they get older? Well, there's a Russian expression which says it's not evening yet. So I really don't know how they're going to turn out as adults. But my fervent hope is that after a couple of years of doing this, it will become a habit and it will become ingrained to them. And it will just become automatic for them to be looking for opportunities to help instead of saying, oh, someone should do something or yes, I mean to do this. I want them to think there's always an opportunity to do good, not just eight days in December or November depending when the holiday is. I really hope it just becomes a habit. It's not something they have to consciously think of. Oh, I have to look for opportunities to do good. It just becomes that when they look at the world, that's how they see the world. Thank you so much, Alina. That's Alina Adams. Uh, She has joined us in New York City, a writer and an author. And stay tuned. In the next hour, we'll speak to a professor about uh, why gift gift giving is good for society, even though some view it as a waste of time and money. But in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you about that special gift you may have received or one that didn't turn out exactly the way you planned. You can give us a call right now at one 416 8333 or you can text us at 226-758-8900.
to four. So let's head back to the phones and get some stories from Canadians calling in, reflecting on some of those best and worst gifts. And we're going to go to Calgary now. Tiana Cosman joins us. Uh, what is your most memorable Christmas gift or gift ever? Hi, my name is Tatiana Kuzmin, and I'm from Calgary. And 31 years ago, uh, I gave birth to a baby boy. Um, he was two weeks overdue, and he's been a delight in our lives ever since. Um, the night before, uh, my husband came home from work, and he said, oh, my God, Tatiana, we need to go straight to the hospital. And I said, no, 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 I'm, uh, I need to wait until I'm fully dilated. And he goes, oh, my God, no way. So we got to the hospital. By the time we got there, there was a full-out blizzard. And uh, several hours uh, later, at 7.37 in the morning, he was born. Um, he had some respiratory issues, so they uh, quickly... Uh, transported him to NICU, and a nursing colleague of mine who was working there laughed because she said, oh, my God, he's the biggest baby in NICU. (laughs) Um, And it was just, it was a miracle. You know, even though I worked as a public health nurse uh, with uh, families and young children to have your own and to know that you created this and that he came on the, the morning of Christmas Eve, it was Spectacular. And do you think about the story of his birth every time Christmas rolls around then or when the blizzard hits at this time of year? Does it bring back those memories for you? Oh, absolutely. Like today in Calgary, the weather is nice and sunny. But uh, every year at 737, my husband will uh, would go into his bedroom and uh, wake him up and say, Happy birthday, <laughs> whether he was awake or not. Um, and it's just, you know, we're grateful for so much. We're grateful that we have such a, a gentle, spirited, kind-hearted, conscientious son. Uh, and we're, we're grateful for the medical system because, you know, um, had we not been living in Canada and we were in a third world country, uh, the outcome wouldn't have been perhaps as as positive. Um, uh, one question for you, Tatiana. You yeah. had a child right around Christmas. We're yeah. talking a lot about gifts. What did you do mm-hmm. to sort of differentiate the experiences of his birthday versus Christmas for him? Because we hear about this all the time when people oh, are born yeah. right near the holidays. Yeah. So... Um, when he was in school, quite often we would celebrate his uh, birthday with his friends two weeks earlier um, or two weeks later. Uh, one year we celebrated it on June 24th so he can appreciate a summer birthday party. Uh, so we've done a whole variety of different options over the years. Uh, and then once he was older, uh, a young adult, then uh, we would just uh, have one of his buddies over on on um, December 24th for a birthday breakfast or birthday brunch. And then 
he would get the rest of the day off. Um, but my husband and I would be prepping for Christmas Eve. And Ukrainian tradition is that it's the 12 course meatless meal for Christmas Eve. So that's a busy so, day for you. <laughs> yeah. So Michael would help out, you know, the two or three days beforehand, but he always knew that, okay, I'm going to have on Christmas Eve, I at least have some time off between my birthday celebration and uh, actual Christmas Eve celebration. Tatiana, thank you so much for calling in and sharing this and happy birthday as well to your son. We really appreciate that. We're going to get a couple more callers in uh, here. Next, we have Terry Spadafore calling us from Fergus, Ontario. Uh, Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, Terry. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. It's a very interesting show. So do you have a, a favorite gift, a favorite uh, Christmas? Time. It mentions, you know, the notes here, you were brought up Jewish. Yep. So it was a bit different, obviously not Christmas, perhaps Hanukkah. It, it was Hanukkah, and I went to elementary school, and we sang Christmas songs with everybody else, and we started seeing about all the presents at Christmas. Well, we only got Hanukkah gelt, money, coins, so I said to my mother, we don't get any presents. Oh, well, she says, you get the money. And woke up Christmas morning, and here she had our couch covered with invitation snow and presents. How and did I it, felt, how I did felt that feel? just like the rest of everybody. I was so excited because I felt part of the Christians as well. So that was my introduction. Did your mother ever tell you why she made the decision to do that that year? No, no, it was just she did it because she wanted me to feel good and to feel like the rest of the kids. And have you celebrated Christmas with presents and gifts like that ever since then? Yes, I have. But when I brought my children up, we taught them all about Hanukkah and we gave them guilt but we also had a Christmas tree. We called it a Hanukkah bush. Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing that. Uh, It's a great memory for for you and remembering that of what your mom did um, that one year. Thank you so much, Terry. Have a great holiday season. You too. Thank you. Let's head to Mississauga now, and we're going to speak with Debbie Cormos. Uh, Debbie, you have, uh, we've heard some good gifts so far. But you're going to bring to the table something that wasn't a great gift, aren't you? Hi, Renee. Yes, I am. I've got a doozy for you. (laughs) Bring it on. So back in 1964, I was 10 years old, Christmas time, of course, and I wanted a Beatles album because the Beatles were the rage around the world. I mean, they're all screaming memes and wanted a Beatles album. And so Christmas comes, and there's presents there, and family's around, and I'm all dressed, and I'm opening up presents, and there's an album there all wrapped up. So I whip it open, take the wrapper off, and it was Ricky Nelson. (laughs) I was devastated. I was devastated. You know, you're looking for the one album you've, you've gotten in life, and here it is, and it's Ricky Nelson, who was also Ricky and Dave Nelson, were also the rage, but they were the good boys. They were the clean-cut boys. You like the and Beatles. 
I wanted the Beatles. I wanted the shaggy bad boys, right? <laughs> and my parents are going, no, 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 we're not having that in this house. So, yeah, I was. I know I was in tears. I know I flung the album aside. And after that, uh, anything else that I opened up was, you know, forget it. <laughs> Did you yeah. play the album? Did you like it? You know, Renee, eventually I played it because what else? What a choice did I have? But it was actually okay. Because and, Ricky Nelson was also very popular. The Ozzy and Nelson, uh, Ozzy and Harriet show. It was very popular. It's just that the Beatles were coming along with their long hair and their rock and roll. And it's just like, you just had to have it, right? But can you imagine? One album under the tree and it was Ricky Nelson. I was so devastated. Did you show <laughs> that devastation quite outwardly oh, to your parents? Oh, oh, yeah. I, you can't hide that. Was it a drama was, Christmas morning? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Christmas morning, I was in tears. Yeah, I was not happy. <laughs> yep. Well, Debbie, but I hope I, you eventually got that Beatles album. I, I never did, but I no? think either the year before, no, or the year after, Chatty Cathy came out, which was also the rage, much like, you know, the 1985 Cabbage Patch Dolls. Absolutely, yep. Had to have a, a Chatty Cathy doll, so I got my Chatty Cathy doll, which was which which made up for it. It really did. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Debbie. Uh, that's a good one, and I like a little bit of drama on Christmas morning. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that with us um, as well. My call, Renee. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. <laughs> Happy holidays. Well, giving a gift is is not just about the money you spend or the thing that you buy. It's often about the emotion that's wrapped up in the whole process of this gift giving. You heard about a bit of drama there in Debbie's house. Now, Steve Jordans is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and we've reached him in Toronto. Hi, Steve. Hey, great to be with you today. You know, you heard that story there uh, with definitely not the album, a lot of drama. There are some complex emotions that go into trying to figure out what the right gift is. It can be really stressful. So, you know. Yeah, it, it can be. Absolutely. And, and to kind of understand, you know, before you get to the stress, I think you have to understand the source of it, which is this, this concept we call the perfect gift. Uh, the idea being that, you know, you could go out there and you could find a gift for an individual that really really told that individual how much you cared about them, that, that it showed that individual that you listened to them, that you understood how they feel about life, and you were able to find something that they really, truly, and deeply desired. Um, and, you know, if, if you do that, it's less about the fact that you found that gift and more about the fact that you were able to find that right gift that fits so well. That's the tricky part. That's where the stress comes in. How much tension can it build into relationships, be it parent, child, partners, siblings, you know, when they're getting down to the wire and they just can't figure it out? They can't get that, quote, perfect gift. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? It's hard for a number of reasons. One of the one of the things is that we all have so much already, right? And so to find something that really is truly special that that person doesn't already have uh, is already difficult in and of itself. But I think the other core point um, that I kind of want to tie to something, if we if it works out, is we also 
often fail to really spend time listening to the people we care about. And that's the real true gift. Um, when you listen to somebody, when you talk to them, kind of like the way a reporter does, but imagine a reporter that was really interested in the details of the story. And so as they interviewed the person, they wanted more details of their story. That's something we call active listening. And we don't do a much of that. We're all happy to tell our own stories. We don't listen enough to others. Um, and so that's that's what a really good gift reflects, the fact that you have listened and that you have you know, cared that deeply. And one of the things I hope to, to leave with people with today is if you didn't get that perfect gift, you can still give that gift of listening and caring, and you will make that person feel happier than any gift will. I'm here live with Steve Jordans. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. Our question today is what are the best and worst gifts you've ever received? You can still call us at one 416 or you could go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. And Steve, you mentioned that, that the yep. conversation of when you don't get the gift you were hoping yeah. for. Um, there can be a, a bit of disappointment, concern. Um, you're going to have to open this gift in front of the person who gave it to you. How can you prepare yourself for that potential disappointment? Because it does happen to all of us at some point during the Christmas season. It, it does. And, and the real tricky thing is that the, the emotional part of our brain is a very primitive part of our brain. And, it's, and it really kind of does its thing and we have very little control over it. So consciously we can use our frontal lobes ahead of time and we can say, Hey, I'm maybe going to be disappointed with this gift, but I don't want to show it. I want to, I want to look like I'm really happy and et cetera. And, and we can, you know, get ourselves already consciously. And then when we open that gift, if it really does surprise us and if it surprises us in a negative way, we're going to show it, you know, where our emotions are just going to come through. Um, you know, this is what poker players spend so much time trying to prevent. Uh, but it's very, very difficult. That primitive emotional reaction is it, it just happens. And then, yeah, we know the person's looking at us and we're trying to cloak that a little bit. And that's where that discomfort kind of comes into play. Uh, and so, yeah, it's something it's something we all feel, but it's also something we all kind of, I think, half expect because it is so difficult to find that perfect gift. We all know that some of our gifts aren't going to land well um, and that some of the gifts we receive aren't going to land well. And, and maybe that makes it a little bit more I don't know, tolerable. <laughs> it reminds me of all those sort of like internet memes where it says like what I'm thinking and then what my face actually looks like. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard, you know, to make it look like you're excited when you're not. Uh, yep. One of the other things we brought up today is the fact that, you know, money is tight for so many mm -hmm. Canadians uh, right now. Um, mm -hmm. How do you suggest parents have conversations with their children? I, you know, ideally they probably would have had it before now, but about yeah. setting their expectations about what is realistic this holiday season. Yeah. And, and you know, one of, one of the things that sometimes some parents do will, will be to kind of take their children to situations where less fortunate people, like maybe you can participate in a, in a soup kitchen or, or something like that, where children can really get a sense of how difficult Christmas is for some people. And so maybe you're part of a, an organization that delivers gifts, or maybe you yourself are going to bring gifts to some place to give to the less fortunate. By having the children kind of get a sense 
of how their life compares to others, um, then it can be you know a little easier to say, you know what, we don't really have the money available we'd like to have. We're far better off than many others. Um, but you're you know, and that's where you can have that conversation. I think about what's reasonable, um, but giving them that that sense that that taste of comparison um and 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 you know the real value that a gift has even a a lower valued gift to a person who doesn't receive them to let them see that in others can be the best way for them to feel that connection emotionally and then bring that home with them all right steve thank you so much for your time uh this christmas eve afternoon steve jordans is a professor of psychology at the university of toronto and we reached him in toronto today and there's still time to get in and take part in our main topic today which is have you ever gotten a gift that maybe started a fight with your loved ones or did it come with you know a memory that you've cherished since then that's our question today what is the best or worst gift you've ever received so you can still call us at one 416 And we have received um, some emails and uh, messages to soundcheck from some of our listeners and viewers today. I'd like to bring those thoughts into the conversation. One comes from David in Red Deer, Alberta, and he says his best Christmas present was being discharged with my daughter from the neonatal intensive care department. So another story about becoming a parent um, around the holiday season. Joanna emailed us in. She says, I don't mean to sound materialistic or greedy, but my worst gift was a $10 Walmart clock for Christmas from a former boyfriend whom I later found out was dating someone else. So not a great Christmas memory for Joanna, I'm sure. And then Sharon also emailed us via email and she says, I received a beautiful pricey bottle of perfume one Christmas past. The gift giver told me that she could not afford it, but didn't know what else to buy for me. I felt very uncomfortable. A beautiful gift became the worst gift I had ever received. So we're getting a huge array here of stories of Christmas memories, holiday memories, gift giving memories uh, from our viewers and listeners today. But let's go back Uh, to the phones. And this time we're going to speak with Kelly Vargo, who has joined us from Lethbridge, Alberta. Good afternoon, Kelly. Ah, Good afternoon. Merry Christmas. We got a brown Christmas here in Lethbridge this year. I heard there hasn't been much snow out there at all this year. Not really. Nothing to speak of since October. So no white Christmas for you this year, but I... Not for us. I hear you do have a memory that has to do with something green. Oh, something green. It was hideous. This, this is kind of a story of, uh, of coming of age or coming to terms. I'm sure my folks didn't think that it was the worst uh, Christmas gift ever, but picture the 1970s, southern Saskatchewan, cold winter day. I've already Christmased with these folks for about 16, 17 years, and uh, I recall opening it, and, you know, it, it must have been boxed. And there it was. It was a hideous green velour pullover crew neck. I think it was crew neck anyways, sweater or shirt kind of a thing. And at the time, and it's immediate, I looked up and I basically told my folks, well, it's obvious that you can't dress me. I know that they've dressed me for years, but <laughs> at that point, it was all over. And I'm a scorpion, so I'm sure this thing was swift. 
What uh, happened to that green velour pullover crew neck sweater in the future? Did you keep it? Did it get returned? What happened? Oh, it never even got tried on. Like, oh, you didn't even put it just, on. Are you kidding? You just had to look <laughs> at it. I, I wish, like, I have a picture in my mind's eye. I wish I could give that to you. But um, anyways, no, I'm sure that my mom simply returned it wherever and uh, we moved on. But again, I never got any clothing from that day forward. And uh, I'm sure it was, you know, but I was 17, so I'm sure it was mostly cash by that, that time forward. And trust me, you know, there were some good presents, certainly some good presents uh, prior to that date. But when I saw that your show was talking about it, that green velour shirt just overrides everything. And It sounds like it's seared story. into your memory, this, this shirt. It is seared. Well, obviously, you can tell that I must have an issue with it. <laughs> Did, what are your thoughts on clothes in general as a Christmas gift? Um, is that something you, you ever buy other people? No. No, nothing that I can think of. No, I, I would stay away from that. But again, I'm 65 years old at this point in time, so uh, we're barking up the wrong tree on that one. All right, Kelly, thank you so much for that uh, story. I can picture that green sweater in my brain right now. Right. Happy holidays, and thank you for calling Cross Country Checkup. Thank you. All right, let's head to Campbell River now, uh, and Billy Harlow is is joining us. Uh, good afternoon, Billy. Hello, thank you for having me. What story would you like to share about your best or or perhaps worst Christmas gift? This goes under the heading of best. It was 1970, and I was 14 years old. In May that year, my father had passed away, so it was my mom and my two Myself and my younger sister home. Uh, we had an older brother married, older sister married. The phone rang. My mom was baking cookies. Uh, we didn't have a tree. We were, you know, rock bottom poor at that time. And uh, but she, you know, she was doing the best she can as moms do. She was a single mom working, doing the best she could. That phone rang, and on the other line was a gentleman that she knew growing up in Powell River. My grandpa, her father, had loaned him money to start a paint store, and I guess he'd never forgotten that. He he heard that my father passed and the straits that we were in, and he asked, could he come by for tea? Of course, my mother said. And soon at the front door came the gentleman and had tea in our in our pretty meager uh, surroundings, but as merry as we could. And he gave my mother a card, a Christmas card, as he left the door and saying, Merry Christmas. <clears throat> when he left, my mom opened the card, and in there were three <clears throat> $20 bills. 1970. You have no idea how much that meant to this little family doing our best. We were living on 4th Avenue in Vancouver. We all bundled up, and off we went to Hamilton Harvey store. And we bought gifts for everyone in the family. And my, I will never forget that Christmas. I mean, Billy, the the memory still sounds so vivid uh, in your mind today. What did that feel like for you and your sisters and and your mom? How much did it change things for you that year? Enormously. 
when you're my sister's younger than me. When you're young and growing up, and everybody is having <clears throat> a merry Christmas and the scent of Christmas trees in everybody's homes, we were left out, you know. And although we didn't, <clears throat> honestly, we didn't feel sorry for ourselves. Nothing like that happened. This was just a, a miracle that happened just out of the heavens, and it made every difference to us. And uh, it's something that you don't ever forget as, as, a, as a 68-year-old all alone now. Um, I don't have Christmas, although uh, my brother and his wife have invited me, and they've come by in years past. You know, I'm on my own. You keep on to your memories, and it can make your heart grow just like the Grinch. Well, Billy, I have to say thank you so much for calling in and sharing that story with us. Um, You know, I hope you are able to find some people and your relatives to spend some time with over these holiday this holiday season. Uh, And we really appreciate you calling in to the show today um, to share that to share that with us. Um, I really appreciate that. I think we have time to sneak in one more quick caller before we go uh, and say goodbye to our NewsNet viewers. Valerie McDonald, she joins us from Midhurst, Ontario. Valerie? Hi, how are you? Good. We don't have too much time here. So best, worst, what was it? Okay, I'll be quick. Well, my mother on Christmas knew how much I loved the Osmond brothers because I had gone down to see them at the CNE several times. She got the phone number of Polydor Records, and they gave my mother their itinerary as to where they were playing on Christmas Day. They were playing um, at Caesars Palace, and my mother called backstage. They, uh, for some reason, put the call through, and they were, doing, they were having an intermission of their set. And the brother put Donnie on the Donnie Osmond on the phone to me, and I had the most wonderful conversation with Donnie Osmond backstage. And my mother in the background was telling him, Valerie, you know, telling me to tell him. Valerie, that I'm going to get back him. to you in a second for the reaction, but I just need to say goodbye right now to our okay. TV viewers on CBC News Network as we continue today's show live on CBC Radio and CBC Gem. Rosemary Barton live is next on CBC News Network. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive. Like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Valerie, let's get back to your story. So what happened with you and Donny Osmond? (laughs) Okay, so my mother kept saying to me, Tell him you love him. Tell him you love him. And so I did. I told him he, he, I, I loved him. And he goes, oh, that's so nice. Like, I mean, I was just 15 years old. But let me tell you, I, I couldn't believe it. It was like a dream come true to be able to actually talk to Tony Osmond. And then years later, I ended up taking a trip to Utah. And um, I found out where they, they lived. Found all, at the time, they were doing Chevette commercials. 
And, uh, you know, Donnie and Marie had, you know, their, like their license plate said their names. And the brothers and the sisters were all driving Mercedes-Benz. And they all had their first names on their Mercedes-Benz. It was, it, yeah, it was pretty exciting. That sounds like a, a memory any teenager would absolutely love to have. Valerie, thank you so much uh, for calling welcome. in and sharing it. Um, and have a good holiday season. You have a lovely holiday, too. You are listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup live on CBC Radio. We have roughly 30 minutes left in our main topic. And then coming up, it may be our most controversial Ask Me Anything ever. How do you load the dishwasher? Is there a right way? Is there a wrong way? Rinse? No rinse? We will have an expert here from Wirecutter, which specializes in consumer products. Uh, She writes about large appliances and can answer all kinds of questions about the do's and don'ts of loading a dishwasher. You can call us now. And bonus points if you have a family member who disagrees with you and you could get them on the air with you with us here on Cross Country Checkup. I'm Renee Filipponi in for Ian Hanamansing today. And you can call us at one 416 or you can text us your questions. The number there is 226-758-8924. But right now we're going to continue our conversation about the best and worst Christmas gifts you have received. And our next guest has studied gift giving from a political economy perspective. But while some in his field have questioned the value of wrapping presents, Professor Anthony Gill at the University of Washington has his own theory, and he joins us from Seattle, Washington. Hello, Anthony. Greetings and Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Oh, I love the hat. You've got a Santa hat on there. That's great. Now, I understand, Professor Gill, you used to teach an academic paper in your class, which inspired a book called Scroogeonomics. So for those of us who haven't taken an economics course in a while, like myself, what is Scroogeonomics exactly? Well, Scroogeonomics was written by an economics professor called Joe Waldvogel. Great book. He's a wonderful guy. But he made this argument that gift giving is wasteful. And that shocks a lot of people. But I think we all somewhat know this intuitively. I was just listening to some of your call-in guests, and somebody was talking about a green velour shirt that they had. They didn't like it at all. And it just sat in their closet. They never wore it. They probably would have rather had cash for that kind of thing. And Professor Waldfogel in Scroogeonomics says we shouldn't be doing all these gift giving because we don't really know what other people want. And we give them things that we don't want. And that wastes resources. He went through and actually calculated that you know, every Christmas we waste billions of dollars on gifts that people do not want. And that's not even counting the wrapping paper or the bows or anything like that. Now, my question is, do you subscribe to the Scrooge theory of gift giving or what's your thoughts on it? Well, as a historical political economist, I have to ask the question, if we have this institution of gifting, which is not only common to our culture here in North America, but you can find it all around the globe and all throughout history, every society has some kind of gifting rituals. There must be something to it because economists would say, inefficient or horrible institutions should be basically selected out of the the whole economic pool. But I think that gift giving actually does provide some value. Even if you do get a green velour shirt and it's not very good, 
there is some value to that, what the economists will call deadweight loss. And what that is, is the sacrifice that that person made for you. And then also the graciousness that you give back for that. Uh, Professor Michael Thomas and I, who's at Creighton University, have written on this topic. And our argument is, is that while we might get gifts that we don't have, it's the gift giving process that helps us instill trust in one another. What it does is that the person who gave me that green velour shirt, even though I don't like it, made a sacrifice for me. And that tells me that that person cares about me. And in the future, if something goes wrong, they're probably going to do something to help me out. And in return, I give my thanks, my graciousness, and, and possibly some reciprocity. I give a gift back to them, too. And it's a wonderful feeling. You, you can see this all around town during this time of year. You see people wrapping gifts and giving shopping and giving gifts to one another. And it makes you feel good. It makes you feel good about humanity because we learn through this kind of sacrifice to trust one another. And oh, by the way, market economies, commercial society really need this trust to, to function very well. And Anthony, I mean, there has to be some value in the fact that for decades, Kelly has been able to tell the story about his green velour sweater, right? Oh, my gosh. Yes, it's, it's a wonderful story because when I was listening to it, you know, he told it with, with a great deal of passion. It, it's not that he was angry that he got the shirt. It's a, it a little kind of funny. And there's some kind of remembrance of those times well spent with your relatives and your friends. And that stuff goes on and on. And it's not only just between us relatives and friends that this matters. One of the important things about gifting rituals like Christmas is that they're very public and very ritualistic. There's certain things that go along with it. We need to wrap our gifts. We need to put bows on them. We sing songs, have feasts. It, it basically shows everybody else, even people you don't know, that we are sacrificial. We're giving of ourselves to other people. And then when you walk down the street and see strangers, they're, they're humming a Christmas tune or they're carrying a bundle of packages. You go, you know, that person is probably pretty good. And in a world where everything seems miserable all the time, that feeling is so important because we learn to trust strangers. We learn that if a stranger does us wrong at some point in time, they're probably going to do something right. That's what gifting is really about. And this season, and this season, that's the spirit of what's going on. And Anthony, finally, how has this research and work and economics shaped how you give gifts? Oh, I, well, it's funny because now everybody, all my economist friends who used to think that there was a deadweight loss will sit back and look at me and uh, look for clues on what they're supposed to do. So um, I'm, I'm somewhat uh, under a lot of pressure to make sure that I'm always sending out Christmas cards to everybody, making sure that everybody is on my list, much like Santa Claus. So I think I've become a little bit of the Santa Claus of uh, political economy. I know there's a Scroogeonomics out there. Joel Waldfogel is a wonderful person, but uh, myself and my colleague, Michael Thomas, have really benefited uh, from this research by just feeling better about humanity. And that's really important. Well, Anthony, with the Santa Claus hat you have on today, you are also giving a bit of a Santa Claus vibe off as well. But uh, happy holidays to you. And thank you so much for joining us this afternoon with your thoughts on the economics of gift giving. We really appreciate that. Now, coming up in 20 minutes, we'll have our AMA with New York Times writer Andrea Barnes on dishwasher etiquette. And what is the right way to load dishes? So you can call us at one 888 or you can send your questions to uh, cbc.ca slash 
air check. And we're going to go back to the phones now because we still have plenty of callers that are calling in wanting to share their stories about the best and worst gifts they have received. So let's go to Javel Schuster in Calgary. Uh, Javel, can you tell us a little bit about um, the gift that is something that you still remember? Yes, thanks so much for having me. Um, Merry Christmas. I'm really enjoying listening to the show and all the stories that people are calling in with. It's awesome. Um, uh, the story of a gift that I think of all the time, but especially at Christmas, is um, in 2010. Um, my daughter, well, when my daughter was born in 2005, we started a tradition where we would go to this absolutely beautiful store in Calgary on 17th Avenue called Rubiat. And they have beautiful Christmas decorations. And so we started a tradition that each Christmas we would go together and pick out a new ornament um, for our tree. And in 2010, I was quite sick um, and I was going through chemotherapy um, for breast cancer. And my daughter was only five. And so we went to the store and I wasn't well and obviously not well um, and having a hard time. But we picked out our ornaments, and um, when I went up to the front desk to pay, the lovely woman who owns the store, Pam, who I didn't really know, I just knew from going to the store, she just came to the desk with this absolutely gorgeous red velvet ornament storage box, just like a spectacular, beautiful box that you are meant to store all your ornaments into, and she gave it to me. And uh, (laughs) I still get emotional thinking about it. And she just said, I'm giving you this box for Christmas because you have to stick around and fill it with ornaments for your daughter um, so that then you can give the box to her. And it was truly an amazing and unexpected gesture that you can hear the emotion in my voice. It still means so much. And um, my daughter and I just went a couple of days ago and picked out her 19th ornament (laughs) from that store. Wow. And we we I think about it every time we pull out the box to decorate our tree. So it also I mean the the story itself is beautiful, but it also just reminds me that she didn't have to do that and it was such a beautiful generous gesture that has continued to make an impact, you know, 13 years later and I'm sure always will whenever I see that box. How has it changed how is that? experience change the way you think about gifts and and the holiday season? I think just um, that even if it's a stranger or if you just see somebody, even if it's a small, a small thing that you can do for somebody or an unexpected gift um, instead of, I don't know, instead of thinking about it too much, if you feel that want to provide something, then now we're connected. Every time we go into the store, my daughter and I, we, we speak to Pam and, and, and she asks how the box is filling up and, and now we're connected. Whereas before we weren't, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a way that a gift actually really meant so much more than, than just the gift itself. And it's created a, a holiday tradition and friendships that you would never have had had she not made that gesture. Thank you so much, yeah. Javelle, for, for sharing that. You, she's called us from Calgary. Happy holidays to you. Yeah, to you, to you as well. Merry Christmas. Thanks for including my story. We're happy to have it. And we're happy that you were willing to share it with us today. Let's go to Toronto now. Melanie Duranovich joins us. Um, 
And she has a story to share about, I think, a gift that her husband got her once, Melanie? Yes, yes. I'd like to preface this with how much I love my husband. Uh-oh, I don't, <laughs> I, now a, I think we know where the story's going. <laughs> what a wonderful man he is. And he's an amazing stepfather, and he's just wonderful. However, one year, about five or six years ago, I think maybe it was before the pandemic, and uh, um, he was telling me that he got me the perfect gift, and I was really going to love it, and and I was really excited about it. And I honestly, I had no idea what it could be. I was really racking my brains, and we went to my brother's home in Windsor, and I opened it up in front of the family. I was really excited. He was so excited. I was excited, and I opened it up. And um, it was a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, I feel like that's like the cardinal rule about Christmas gifts, right? Like anything yeah. that you're going to use to do tasks around the home, if it's like a, unless you specifically ask for it, I kind of think like it's a no-go. <laughs> I know. And I made a big joke about it. I said, a vacuum cleaner, that's kind of like an ironing board and, or an iron. <laughs> And, and he said, but you like to clean. And I said, I, I oh, know. No. <laughs> I, I, well, um, <laughs> I said, I don't know if I like to clean. I like it when it's clean. I like I like things clean. I don't love cleaning. I clean because I like it to be clean. But I, I kind of like went overboard razzing him about it. And to the point where my daughter, uh, who is his stepdaughter, um, she actually came to his defense. And she said, Mom. You know, Adam just tried to make you happy, and he put a lot of thought into this. And, you know, like, I think you're taking it too far. And I realized that, you know, she showed how much she loves her stepdad, who is, I don't even like the word stepdad, but she shows she showed how much she loved him by coming to his uh, rescue and coming to his defense. And then I, I kind of toned it down on the razzing. But we still have this little vacuum cleaner. It's, it is quite handy. It's a handheld vacuum cleaner. And we... <laughs> We still like to joke about it. <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably brought some humor to Christmases uh, that have come since that one, I'm assuming. Yes? Yes. <laughs> the vacuum cleaner story. But um, but we're, um, it, it definitely, uh, you know, it, uh, it's, a good, it's one for the books. And um, just to let you know what a great uh, partner, husband, stepfather he is. He's at my dad's house right now doing some Christmas baking with uh, our daughter because our oven broke. <laughs> well, Melanie, we can't we can't all knock it out of the park every single year. So I'm sure I'm sure he's learned some sort of lesson from the vacuum fiasco uh, going forward. Poor guy. <laughs> he's 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 a wonderful man. He he's not perfect, but he's perfect for me. So that's all I can say. I love him to bits. All right, Melanie, thank you so much. I appreciate you calling in to tell us the, this story because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there with a very similar story to this. Or maybe there are some partners out there right now with wrapping a, a vacuum <laughs> going, oh, no, what did I do? Was this wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Bad choice. <laughs> Thanks again, Thank Melanie. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Uh, let's go to Mark Leckman in Calgary, who has a story about uh, one of his best gifts. So not a vacuum cleaner, was it, Mark? No, no, it was not. Uh, so I was about uh, 12 years old, came from a really big family, and so we didn't have a lot. And uh, as a 12-year-old back in the early 70s, I was really passionate about uh, skateboarding that had just become very popular. Unfortunately, uh, my parents couldn't afford to buy me one, but my dad uh, went to the stores, 
studied them, and then uh, using his workshop, he built a skateboard for me from scratch. Um, really? And yeah, uh, and I'll never ever forget that. Uh, I can remember the look on my face was this unbelievable um, gift that my dad had built for me, and I used that skateboard for about five years. I, I, I wow! How did he even learn how to build a skateboard? Or he did he just figure it out? Or well, my, my dad worked for Air Canada, so he was uh, he. Uh, so he was great with his hands. We had a huge workshop in the basement. And so he used scraps of wood and, and metal that he had downstairs in the basement and, and designed something. The only thing they had to buy was the wheels. And of course, at that time, the wheels was were not that expensive. But, uh, but otherwise, he built everything else uh, for that skateboard. And he even put an emblem on it for me. And uh, it was made out of oak that he had uh, glued together out of the workshop. Now, Mark, I also understand you have a worst gift idea. <laughs> and this is you. You were on the bad end of this one, correct? Well, yeah, my kids were. So my uh, uh, my wife at the time and I had wanted to surprise our kids with a trip to Costa Rica. And uh, we decided we were going to hire an elf to come to the door a week and a half early before Christmas to deliver this gift directly from Santa uh, and and surprise the kids so that my uh, kids were 10 and 4 at the time. Um, so we had worked this through with the agency that was going to be a great elf. We had given them a speech and they had memorized it. Something happened where the elf was sick and so they sent a replacement instead. Um, unfortunately, it was a last-minute uh, situation and so, uh, of course, the, the bell rang at the time we were expecting. We opened the door and there's this little person who uh, doubled as a stripper on her no, off time. No, no, Mark. <laughs> um, and so she was wearing quite revealing, uh, a quite revealing outfit with a elf hat on and proceeded to uh, read the, uh, the script wrong and made mistakes. And uh, the look on my face uh, was, was priceless, I'm sure. My kids didn't really understand, of course, at that particular time. because They had no age. idea, probably. Nope, nope. But it's funny, we brought it up maybe about four or five years ago. We, uh, we brought it up, or I brought it up to them. And, and my daughter, who was 10, she said, yeah, they, I didn't think elves looked like that. <laughs> Oh, Mark, there's a story to tell for generations to come, I am oh, sure. Yes, and yep. I think that's what we're learning today. A lot of these gifts, really, uh, it's the story that comes with them that you can share for generations that become so memorable. So thank you, Mark, for uh, yep, calling no in problem. the good and the bad. Um, from Calgary. We really appreciate that. Now, whether or not your family participates in gift giving at this time of year, your kids are probably talking about it with their friends at school. For Taslim Jaffer, that discussion prompted her family to adopt Christmas traditions, even though she wasn't raised with those customs herself as Muslim. And she joins us now from Surrey, BC. Hello. Hi. All right, so take us back to that first conversation you had with your children about Christmas and gift giving. How did that get started? How did it go? Okay, well, um, so as you said, like, I didn't grow up with this tradition. Um, I grew up in Richmond, uh, but we didn't celebrate Christmas in our family. Um, so we didn't have a tree. We didn't have gifts. Uh, we still did. My brother and I still participated in Christmas concerts, and um, I went to friends' houses and had turkey dinner there, uh, but we didn't have that in our home. And so when my husband and I, who's also from the same 
background as me, um, when we talked about family traditions, we didn't think we were going to have uh, the tree and the, and the gifts and all of that um, until our oldest daughter was in kindergarten. And I picked her up from school one day. Uh, it was probably around the end of November. And she came out of the classroom and she was so excited. And she was like, Mom, Santa's going to come to our house and put gifts under the tree. Uh, all the kid, all the good kids are going to get presents. And that's when um, we knew we were at a parenting crossroads. Uh, you know, which way do we go? Do we stick to what we thought, like that we wouldn't do this? Or do we just go with the flow? And uh, we ended up just getting caught up in her enthusiasm and excitement and decided to put up a tree and uh, put some gifts under there and just kind of see where it led. Was that a complicated decision for you to make? It was. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I I always uh, I loved Christmas for different reasons, even though we didn't celebrate it in our home. I love the music and I love the lights and uh, the time we spent with family because we still did do that. We didn't have a turkey dinner. We had chicken biryani and samosas, but um, I still love that season. However, um, adopting it as like a, a really big festival was difficult because uh, I didn't want any of our traditional festivals to be outshone, which is very easy <laughs> for that to happen when Christmas is a mainstream tradition and it's kind of everywhere. I mean, my daughter really got into it because of what she heard in school. Um, so, yeah, there was a little bit of there was a hesitation that, OK, once we go forward in this path, like we can't really we can't take it back and we have to work a little harder to keep our own festivals um, kind of exciting. Today, we're talking about best and, and worst gifts ever received. Do you have any particular story or gift uh, that's been meaningful for you? Yeah, I I was thinking about this. I actually have really enjoyed listening to the callers talking about theirs. Um, mine's, I think, pretty simple. Um, I when I decided to uh, pursue writing um, more professionally, and um, I was talking to my family about it. Then the next Christmas, they ended up getting me a notebook, like a digital notebook that's um, very old now. It's probably obsolete, but um, yeah, and it was just kind of like this symbol of like, here, we're supporting you in your path. And um, that was really meaningful. And every Christmas, I know I'm going to get something to do with um, being a writer, which I really appreciate because I'm mom all the time. So it's really nice when my family kind of acknowledges the part of me that has my own personal interests and, and goals. I'm here with Taslim Jaffer. She's a freelance writer, a mom. And our question today is, what is the best and worst gift you've ever received? You can still call us at one 416 Now, we also spoke to arts and culture writer Sadaf Hassan. She also grew up celebrating Christmas as Muslim. Now, here's what she told us about why the season of giving is important to her. My family, for the longest time, we use Christmas because we get time off 
often we don't really get that for our holidays, like Eid, for instance. We use that time to gather and get together. And we'll usually do a very big feast and we'll do a little gift exchange. We'll get a little dressed up. It's not anything to do with religion. It's more about just having that chance to get together. Because Christmas was such an essential part of growing up in the West, it's kind of been a part of our culture always. So because we've grown up with it, we've always seen it as a time for celebration. And I don't think that's necessarily about assimilation. Islam is based on community building. Charity is such an essential part of Islam. And I think that will be a big go-to for so many of us on behalf of so many of the Gazans that are suffering right now, I know that I will be donating. I know my family will be. But again, it just goes back to that key feeling of community building and the spirit of being together. Now, you wrote a piece, uh, Taslim, about your experience a few years ago, an opinion piece for CBC's Point of View series uh, when it came to Christmas. What kind of reaction did you get from that article? Um, well, I got a lot of responses, actually, and they usually fell into one of three categories. Um, one was uh, people who their parents had adopted Christmas for them, and uh, they were really appreciative of it, like they loved growing up with it. Um, but I think my piece also made me think, made them think about maybe what their parents kind of went through as they adopted this new thing. And um, it was sparking some conversations in their home, which I really loved. Um, I also had a few people tell me that I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be, um, you know, incorporating Christmas into my family. Those were just a few, like a handful of people who said that. But um, I think the overwhelming majority of responses I got were um, people who were really happy that I had done this uh, because they said that it was uh, a part of being Canadian and um, and that, you know, being an immigrant meant that I had to um, take on this new festival and celebrate it. And they were happy that I was doing it. Um, I was like, OK, that well-intentioned. I know that there was no harm behind that. Uh, but I also think that that was a little too um, it was just a little too simplistic because mm -hmm. it's not it's not that easy. It, there's a bit of a loss that happens if, if we're not able to celebrate our traditions as um, as big as Christmas. It's really hard to compete with. And, um, you know, like as Sadaf mentioned in her uh, voice uh, recording there that, you know, we don't get Eid off, we don't get Nevros off. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, just like... Um, having getting those responses felt a little bit like a pat on the head for being a good immigrant, whereas I wanted to really uh, highlight the struggle and and that, you know, it's an evolution. Like, I mean, yeah, we didn't have Christmas growing up, but I, I remember in high school, my mom put a couple of presents under a house plant uh, from <laughs> me and my brother. And I think that's just like the perfect image of like, what um, evolution a family goes through generation to generation that happens with migration. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective today on this topic and, and your experience at this time of the year. We really appreciate that. That's Taslim Jaffer, a writer and mom in Surrey.
BC. And our AMA on dishwasher etiquette is coming right up. So you can call us with your questions right now. That's one 416 Again, that's one 416 And we have room for one more caller. We're going to speak with Courtney Fairweather in Toronto. Courtney, what's your best gift? My best gift, gift, well, it comes with a story about family and how there, there can be a lot of tension in families at, around Christmas time. And I, I see now that my mother was an emotionally disturbed person, but I didn't know then. And, and we were always at loggerheads. So when I was about 10 years old, there was a doll that I wanted. And she just kept saying, no, no, no doll. And, but I, you know, I didn't entirely believe her. And Christmas Eve, I kept creeping downstairs and she kept yelling at me to go back to bed. But eventually I got to the living room and I found the doll under the tree. And it turned out that my father had used his lunch money week after week. And he bought the doll and he smuggled it home for me on Christmas Eve. And the doll was a gift, but the important thing was that he stood up for me and he defied my mother in, you know, um, supporting me since she usually got her way with things. And so I always remember my father when I think of that, that Christmas. It does sound like, however, Courtney, you had some faith, despite everything, that 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 doll would show up. Did did you think it would be your father that would come through for you? No, it never occurred to me. It was just, I I don't know what it was, that I just had a feeling that I would get that doll. And I knew my mother meant no. I mean, there was just no way she would, she was going to get it for me. But and I, I know I, I was 10 years old. I was too old to believe in Christmas, in Santa Claus. But the doll was there and it was my dad. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for sharing um, that story with us today. That's Courtney from Toronto. And thanks to everyone who called in to Cross Country Checkup today to speak with us about their best and worst gifts ever, be it for the holidays or any time during the year. But right now it's time for Ask Me Anything on how to load your dishwasher. Uh, my daughter has to load it a certain way. If it's not done that way, it's redone. I don't even know her way. You rinse them first. You, you can't put all the globs of the, the sticky uh, cornflakes and the stuck-on egg and whatever you have in the dishwasher. You're asking too much of it. Handles down because then the, the tongs and the eating portion get more washed, I think, when they're up. Just listening to those first few clips may already have your blood boiling. Do you rinse the dishes first or put them in dirty? Is it knife handles up or handles down? How full is too full when it comes to loading the dishwasher? The dishwasher can be a source of family drama like no other appliance. 
particularly during the holidays when there are so many dishes to do. So to keep the family at peace, we're tackling the science and art of how best to load a dishwasher. Uh, And we really do need your call. So what does your family fight over when it comes to loading the dishwasher and why? And if you can convince that family member to come on the radio with you to defend themselves even better, keep them right beside you. And I want to introduce the person who's going to try and, and help us settle some of these debates. Andrea Barnes is a staff writer at Wirecutter with the New York Times. That's the paper products uh, recommendation service. She specializes in large cleaning appliances and tests and reviews dishwashers. And we reached her today in New York City. And you can ask Andrea anything. So call us at 1-888-416-8333. You can also send a text to us at 226-758-8900. Andrea, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Let's get to the crux of it. What is the biggest dispute when it comes to loading a dishwasher that families have? Well, I know in my family, with my parents, it would be whether or not you can load a dishwasher with wooden utensils. Ooh, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is no, um, you cannot. (laughs) So the reason for this is actually it's not as much to do with the dishwasher as that uh, soaking the wood utensils in water and, and the detergent can harm the utensil itself. So you'll see, um, if you would go to my parents' house, you would see some of their wooden spatulas have, a have, have frayed almost from, you from can running see them. that at my house mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> Yes. It's, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> now, my colleague Ian Hannemansing, who normally hosts this show, mm-hmm. uh, he posted a, a photo on social media recently uh, showing off his dishwasher technique. Now, for our radio audience, he has loaded the plates facing all different directions, and he got some strong responses on social media, including a woman, Judy, who wrote, this gives me hives. Where is the order? Why aren't the plates all facing the same way? Um So let's settle this, Andrea. Does everything need to face the same way? Does it really make a difference? Well, first, I'd like to know how the dishes turned out, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which might answer the question. Uh, It really depends on what you're loading. Um, Now, for any dishwasher, the most important thing I'm going to tell you is you should look at your manual. A manual will actually give you a guide to exactly how a dishwasher should be loaded and what should be loaded in it. Um, That said, the biggest thing for loading a dishwasher is to make sure that nothing is stacked too close together or blocked. Because what's really important is that when the spray arms are running, you want to be sure that the dishes that and the soiled parts of the dishes are being hit, right? So you could put two dishes that face uh, facing each other if you wanted to in the dishwasher. The, the important part would be ensuring that one's not leaning uh, in a way that's going to block it from being cleaned. All right. Well, we already have some families calling in willing to share their disputes. So let's get straight to them. Let's go to Joel Ginsburg in Ottawa. Hello, Joel. Tell us what the situation with the dishwasher is like at your house. Hello. Well, I'm grateful for your guests' comments because my wife and daughter tend to cram as much as they can into the washer. And one thing's leaning on another. And of course, I get perturbed. And then I have my own system, really, which means I'm obsessive compulsive. So for the top tray, glasses and cups on the left to the far right, smaller items, small bowls, and up the middle, cereal bowls. Down in the bottom, large plates in the back, small plates in the front. 
bigger bowls and things around the perimeter, and then I don't ever have anything near the cutlery. It's gotten so bad that in the kitchen one day, my daughter said, hey, did you want to rearrange everything? Because I'm about to run the dishwasher. (laughs) You sound very methodical, Joel. Well, I want to know the optimal space, and I think I just heard it between dishes because the manual's probably in about one of 20 piles in our uh, office here, so I don't have quick access. But I'll just tell you one last thing. A dear friend of mine, he said, you know what ticks me off the the most is when my wife (laughs) loads the washer, and I don't want to be sexist. I'm sure there are many women who can load the washer beautifully. Well, I actually know that we have your wife on the phone as well, um, Joel. So let's bring Eureka in. Uh, are you there, Eureka? What are your thoughts on on Joel's uh, dishwasher method? I'll turn her over with great reticence. One okay. second. <laughs> Hello, I- this is Eureka. Yes, Eureka, we've um, just heard from Joel and how particular he is about loading the dishwasher. What are your thoughts on this? It's crazy, but uh, I think he got a special talent for that to use the every single space to organize the dishes and the cutleries. So actually, I appreciate for that, but uh, I haven't managed his skills over um, marriage, like a um, marriage over seventeen years so far. So hopefully next year I'll master the way he does. Now, here's my question for you, Eureka. He He's very particular about loading the dishwasher, which it sounds like he spends some time on. Do you <laughs> then, are you responsible for maybe unloading the dishwasher more? I guess, yes. I mean, uh, we, um, our daughter and then I equally um, loading the dishwasher, but every time, <laughs> just before we turn on, he has to um, fix the dishes. So, no matter how I, how we do, he likes to do his own way to <laughs> rearrange it. Andrea, and it, it yes. doesn't matter the way we do or the he the way he does. So that works for our, our family. Andrea, what do you make of of the back and forth here between uh. Joel and Eureka? And also, on top of that, I'd like your thoughts on how particular Joel is about loading this dishwasher. Well, well, first I'm going to say, Joel, congratulations! You really have it down to a science. Um, I'm I'm impressed, uh, and I will say that uh, if everybody took that much care with their appliances, they could probably have them for much longer. Um, uh, Eureka, I will say to you that my husband rearranges my dishes in the dishwasher too, <laughs> regardless of how well it's loaded. I think some people just like to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, as long as the dishes are getting clean and you're taking care of your appliance, I think how how you load it is really up to you. And um, I've learned to view my husband's reloading of my of dishwashers as endearing. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the only way you can deal with it because it's going to be a constant sort of battle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and I almost said something to him like that recently, too. Do you want to rearrange it? But honestly, you know what? I think it's cool that he cares that much. So uh, and and he is an engineer. So it's very much 
his his thing. <laughs> thank you, Joel. And thank you, Eureka, for uh, both jumping on the line there to give us a little insight into life in your household. We appreciate that. Let's go to Justine Buckle in Surrey with uh, a question for you, Andrea. Justine? Hi. Hello. So my question is, is that uh, can you put like plastic containers inside the dishwasher? Because I know like multiple times when we've put them in, taking them out, they've still been like grease on them and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So is it like, should we wash them first or like rinse them out and then put them in or just not even bother and just hand wash them? Out of curiosity, what kind of dishwasher detergent do you use? We use the Finish Cascade, like the pods. Oh, you use pods? Okay. So I would say that one, it depends on how greasy and oily it is. Uh, Any... I am a big proponent of not rinsing your dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. But if you're putting something in that is difficult to wash even by hand, then that's a little bit different. Uh, But to answer your first question, you shouldn't, you can always put, you can put plastic in the dishwasher. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, that's really a personal choice, right? Uh, There's, there's no, unless it says that it's not dishwasher safe, then obviously don't. But, you know, for Tupperware and and those Rubbermaid, those kinds of uh, plastic things, you can put them in the dishwasher. So if they're not getting cleaned and they're not particularly dirty when you put them in, I might try mm-hmm. a different detergent or um, and, and also make sure your filter is cleaned because sometimes that can be an issue too. But uh, yeah, absolutely, you can put plastic into your dishwasher. Okay. What kind of detergent would you recommend? Um, well, at Wirecutter, we recommend Cascade Free and Clear Pods are our pick. They did great. And incidentally, one of the things that put them over the edge for us in testing was um, the Tupperware, because we did test Tupperware on the top racks of the dishwasher. Uh, the second runner-up was Cascade Platinum Plus. And then okay. uh, we also recommended Finish Powder. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Justine. I have a quick question for you for myself, uh, Andrea. When it comes to the pods, do you just toss them in or do you put them in the little container that they're supposed to go in? Because this has been a bit of a conversation. I I know this has been a a pretty controversial thing because (laughs) there was someone on TikTok saying to throw them in. I okay. so we tested 17 dishwashers. We tested I can't even remember over 20 different dishwasher detergents and many pods. And I, and we never had one stick to a door of a dishwasher or get caught in a filter. Um, so I would say you're completely fine to put them in, in the dispenser. Uh, if they keep getting stuck, uh, it could be something quirky about your machine and maybe even the drawer itself, but I would say, make sure your hands are dry when you're loading uh, the dishwasher when you, well, when you put the dishwasher detergent into the dispenser, because that is probably more likely why it's sticking. Uh, the, uh, the pods that are wrapping, uh, or the film that wraps pods is actually closely related to Elmer's glue. So if it's a little wet, it can stick to things, but it should be, it should, that shouldn't happen. That's the only time I can think of it happening. We ran so many, I think for each dishwasher we tested, we ran over 20 loads and then we ran even more loads to test uh, detergents and we never had it happen one time. 
All right. I'm here live with Andrea Barnes. She's a staff writer with Wirecutter at The New York Times. And uh, we are taking your calls. It's our Ask Me Anything, a dishwasher etiquette edition. So you can give us a call right now at one 416 And we're going to go to Barrie, Ontario now with Osis Ilobe. Uh Osis, welcome to Cross Country Checkup. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. What's your question for Andrea today? Okay, I have two questions actually. Um, my, my, I don't know if she can clear out the air in regards to this question. The first question goes like this: um, um, I was actually thinking the machine, dishwashing machine, is it actually designed just for, uh, let's say, the type of food being eaten in the western part of the country? Because I'm originally from Africa, and we have lots of sticky foods, and I usually tend to to soak the dish for a while before putting it in a dishwasher. Um, is that ideal or can I trust the dishwasher to handle it, handle the, the sticky food? Because whenever I do that, it doesn't really come out well. And the last question, what kind of dishwashing pot or powder would you recommend? Because regardless of what I try, I cleans the machines and I've tried different types of pods. Uh, I still get this sticky, oh no, powdery uh, residue Whenever the the face uh, is done, the dishwasher is done, and I sometimes have to rinse. You run a, uh, an additional rinsing mm-hmm. cycle, or I have to rinse the place before using it. Can you clarify the two questions I have, please? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's one that's fascinating. Um, so this is this is actually kind of a complicated question, and I'll tell you, you're you're actually what you're saying could completely be true. So, uh, dishwasher detergent. They, it contains enzymes and different enzymes are uh, designed, they, they're attracted to different kinds of things, right? So for example, in cascade uh, pods, there's an enzyme that particularly loves egg, right? So those enzymes uh, help break down egg in the dishwasher. So it is it is possible that there's something that you're cooking with that the, these enzyme blends that are available in the Canadian market are not particularly great at, at breaking down the clean. Um, but I would, so that that's the first part. Um, the second, so what I, to, to get around that, how many different dishwasher detergents have you tried? I, I would say give or two, three, two, three different types. I usually use a uh, Costco. So I, I think I go with the, whatever brand I can find at Costco right now. Okay, tried, you go to Costco. Do you use the Costco, yep. um, like the house brand, the Kirkland Signature? Yep, I use the Kirkland, oh. and I think I use Ariel. And what's the other one that is white, majorly white and blue in color? I can't seem to remember the name off the top of my head, but I think I know I've used uh, three brands right now. Okay, so the first thing I would do is I would actually uh, play around with different detergents, and uh, you know. For example, if you if you don't eat a lot of peanut butter, then like Cascade did great with peanut butter, but it might not do great with other things. Um, so I would try different detergents first. Um, and I will say that if you're looking at, at pods, uh, one of the things we really liked about Cascade pods when we were testing them is they're uh, hyper-concentrated. The powder uh, is amazing for breaking down soils, right? But it also has a liquid top. Uh, that has detergent boosters. So um, if I recall correctly, the the other pods, the Kirkland Signature pods actually are just compressed powder. 
So if you get a deter, if you get a, a pod that has this liquid booster on top, it actually makes a huge difference. And at least it did for us in testing and how well it cleans. Um, so I would one, maybe try that. Um, and that would be the first step I would do. Uh, I would also be curious to know uh, what what is the sticky substance that you're having trouble rinsing? Um, it's mostly oil, palm oil based soups or okay. sauce. Okay. Similar I would to, try- to your to your tomato paste, or but we use also palm, either palm oil or or peanut oil. Okay, so I'm now I'm definitely going to do this in testing next year. <laughs> You've got a whole list of yeah work for you ahead of yourself, Andrea. Yeah, um, but I would say I would start with trying a different detergent, and I would look uh, when you go to Costco. I know they sell Cascade uh, Platinum uh, pods. When you go to Costco, I would try those out. Um, maybe, and if you don't want to buy a bunch in case it doesn't work, maybe just go buy a smaller pack at the grocery store to try and see if that makes a difference. Uh, if it doesn't. Uh, I, I guess you're going to have to rinse. Although I, I really think that if you try a few different detergents first, you won't have to do that. Okay. All right. There you go. There you go. Osis. Thank (laughs) Thank you so much for the call from Barry, Ontario. Now we did uh, have a comment, uh, from a caller as well. Blaine Spiegel from Toronto. He thinks dishwashers are useless devices. He's a cook and used to be a dishwasher at a restaurant. Um, what do we know about dishwashers? Are they more effective than hand washing uh, in getting things clean? Or what's sort of the verdict on that? Um, I mean, believe it or not, I get this comment a lot. <laughs> so I'll, the first, I'll start. Uh, number one, uh, when you are running a faucet, uh, I think it's the average of two gallons per minute that you run a faucet is that's how much water you're losing. Uh, dishwashers are designed to use uh, four to six gallons of water per cycle, depending. So it you'd be it would be pretty challenging to use less water. Uh, the other for me, if you're actually loading and doing your dishwasher and, and and doing your dishes with your dishwasher correctly, which does mean not rinsing your dishes, instead scraping large pieces of food off. Um, you're using a lot less water and you're also saving yourself a whole lot of time. Uh, when we switched to, to scraping dishes instead of rinsing, because yes, I at one time I did also rinse my dishes years ago. It, it saves us so much time. Uh, to, to, for, you know, I've, I have a family of four, we have all sorts of things we're eating and, and we run the dishwasher once a day and it's, it's made our lives a lot easier because we don't rinse and it saves a lot of time. Um, but you know, nobody's going to force anybody to use a dishwasher if you don't want to. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Andrea. Let's go to Boyd Thompson in Vancouver. Uh, Boyd, do you have a question? Yes, I've often heard uh, what I think is a myth, but maybe it's true that you're not supposed to put your sharp kitchen knives in the dishwasher. And I'm just wondering if there's uh, any verdict or science on that. Is that something you looked into, Andrea? So it this is a this depends. Now, uh, yes, that is uh, the common thing for people to say. Uh, For the more expensive knives, oftentimes they have wooden handles. 
And that is a large yeah. part of why that's the recommendation because it will uh, it will ruin the wood over time. Uh, we have, my husband and I have a few uh, of nicer knives and we will, if it doesn't have a wooden handle, we will put those in the top of the dishwasher. But uh, otherwise we, we hand wash them. Okay, yeah, that's what I figured because I know obviously wood, not so not so great. But yeah. uh, the sharp ones, as long as they're not in a position where they're going to bang into something, getting jostled around, then then it seems like it would be okay. Yeah, I mean, I I think common sense. You know, if it's a very sharp, you can. It also depends on the size, right? Um, and the kind of dishwasher you have. If you have a dishwasher with a third rack where um, you can pull the third rack out to load the utensils, it's um, there's usually a sort of um, uh, a lower part of that rack that you can easily put knives in. Yeah, I got one of those recently, and it's it's changed how I wash cutlery completely. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's I find free. it's also the, the risk. I did once when I used to have a commercial dishwasher in a cafe, cut myself reaching in Oof. to the dishwasher because there were sharp knives in there, mm -hmm. sort of vertically. Mm. Um, but yeah, with the stacking on the third tray, I think that's that's been great. Yeah. So I would say, well, I'm sorry that happened to you first, but um, I would say with as long as it doesn't have a wooden handle and you have that third rack, absolutely. That's a safe place to put it, to put any right. of those knives. All right, Boyd, thank Thanks you so much. much. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your question. You're that's welcome. Boyd Thompson uh, calling us from Vancouver. Let's go to Deb Gervin in Toronto. Deb, what is your question today on loading the dishwasher? Okay. Well, two questions. One is more about putting plastic um, like leftover containers in the dishwasher. We've had a couple where it comes out like it's okay the first couple of times, but then it starts to have like a kind of waxy white sort of residue on the bottom. And uh, it's like, you can't sort of, it's almost like, I don't know if it's the actual plastic that's just getting ruined over time or whether it's some kind of, uh, uh, detergent residue. Um, is it like a takeout container, like an actual takeout container? No, it's like, it's like a, you know, like a, a Tupperware Rubbermaid, but that, that you purchased. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I've never heard of that before. Um, you know, with plastic, you, you can reach a limit to how many times it can be washed okay. before it needs to be recycled. But, um, I would also be curious how high how high the heat your dish are how old is your dishwasher? It's old, probably okay. maybe fifteen years, maybe a bit oh. long older. Okay, so probably part of what's going on is that dishwashers, um, the older dishwashers used to get a lot hotter. Okay, so it might that might have something to do with it. Uh, I I would guess. Because I haven't okay, seen that yeah. in modern dishwashers that I'm testing. And as I've said, I've tested <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. that might be part of it. And actually, in a lot of the older dishwashers, um, they recommend avoiding putting plastic in. Uh, so I, if it's possible, if you can find the model dishwasher you have by looking at it, I bet you can uh, find uh, the manual online and see if that's the case for that one, too. And, and I'll add to that will. 
And I'll add to that one, Deb, I've noticed as well that the the cheaper the Tupperware or the plastic, um, you know, if it's the the more like the Ziploc ones or some of the other ones, I've noticed they break Mm -hmm. down a little faster than some of the the more expensive ones. Right, right. Okay, well, I can definitely explore that a little bit more. I did have another question. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, when I take a glass, clean glass out of the dishwasher and I go to fill it with water to have a drink... It seems like the water kind of bubbles. And I know sometimes when you fill up a a glass, it does kind of bubble. But these seem a little bit, they seem more like soap bubbles. And um, we don't use like the the hot dry. We just let the dishes kind of sit until they're dry sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. is it, should I be using the hot dry for that? Is there like a potential residue that I, uh, I should be rinsing out? Or do I just not bother? It's just all in my head. <laughs> I, I I don't think it's necessarily in your head uh, <laughs> at all. <laughs> so, relief. That's a relief. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, so do you rinse your dishes before you put them in the dishwasher? Uh, only if it's really extra. You okay. Know. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a good question. And again, I, I think this might have something to do with your dishwasher being a little bit older. Um, right. When, you know, dish one dishwashers were, uh, it's about 10 years ago that uh, I think in Canada and the U.S., they switched from uh, phosphate detergents to enzymatic detergents. And I'd be curious if there's some sort of difference in in how things are rinsed now, but I I don't know for sure. Um, But but I would say, do you use powder detergent? No, use like the the uh, packs, the gel packs. You use the packs? Um, and you use the ones filled with gel? Yeah, yeah, the okay. gel. Um, I, I, this, apparently I'm a skipping record tonight. I would say... <laughs> um, change your detergent. Yeah, change your detergent. Um, we didn't, we didn't love uh, gel detergents in testing. Okay, um, okay. They, yeah, so it's pretty, it's pretty nifty and interesting um, because it's kind of the opposite for laundry, which I also cover. Uh, liquid detergents cannot have a lot. There's a separation of chemistry that needs to exist. Now, you know, you're not supposed to mix bleach and hydrogen peroxide and and right. Right. I'm going to yes. have to jump in. We're oh. running out of time, but okay. <laughs> I do think the answer for a lot of people today is to try some other detergents. Thank you so much, Deb, yeah. for calling in uh, with your question today. And Andrea Barnes, thank you so much. She's a staff writer at Wirecutter with the New York Times. That's it for Check Up the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkups live broadcast on CBC Radio from December 24th, 2023. If you want to share comments or appear on the show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. And thanks to all who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Bisma Mahal, Selena Aaron, and Alexa DeFrancesco. Our TV team is Elaine Wong, Brendan Sylvia, David Tuckman, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing, Emily Chiarvesio and Matthias Wolfson. Program assistant, Hannah Abrahamsey. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Steve Howard, Arsheen Shamila, and Rachel DeGasparis. Digital producer, Sinisha Yolich, and our senior producer this week, Abby Plenner. I'm Renee Filipponi in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.